Amen. Great song. Kind of reminded me of Romans 5 and several other places just before the message this morning as the kids are leaving. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, so here's all that's been said before this leading up to chapter 5 in Romans. Since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, by faith, all we've done is believe, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I hope you are rejoicing today in the hope of the glory that is coming. It is ours. We are the sons and daughters of God. If you've trusted Christ, you are an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. He's the one and only begotten son. We are adopted children of God. Uh, good songs this morning. All right. Um, so today is part two of a message. All right. So uh, hopefully you have the handout either from last week or a new one from this week. Uh, let me quickly, I'm going to do some reviewing. It'll take just a few moments to get where we left off. Um, if you were not here last week, I want to encourage you when you get a chance to go on the website and actually listen to last week's message. I don't say that every time, uh, but it would really help couple with today. All right. So as I started last week, I need to confess, those of you that are here all the time, you will recognize how different today is. If you have only been to Graceview a few times, you will probably think, may think last week and this week are typical style sermons. They are not. Uh, this is definitely a topic, a topical type sermon. Normally we are doing expositional right now. So since I've been here, we've done Romans and we've done Matthew on Sunday mornings. And now we're in the sixth chapter of Acts. We hit the sixth chapter of Acts two weeks ago. And that's when we hit this idea of deacons in the early church. So we're going through church history, the early church history. And we kind of hit that deacon section. And because of that, that was a good time for us to stop and implement and kind of teach a topical message, which would do not normally interrupt our expositional preaching. But this time we are for a two-week study of, of why we have the biblical style of church leadership that we do. Why do we have our church leadership style that we do? And as I said last week, what I'm sharing last week and today is began as a result of my own Bible study, my own Bible reading, and I noted that what I had experienced in life is was different than what I was reading. So there are a few things in my life that as I've read the Bible, I've noted I've got to change what I believe, or if I ever have a chance, I'm going to change the implementation of some things. And uh, the Lord allowed me eventually in 2016 uh, to come to this church, and these things were already in place. The pieces were already here and that I had never experienced. But... Uh, so why do we have the leadership style of church? So again, I hope I don't bore you today. Uh, this is stuff that when I look at it, I think it is really important. We are a different kind of church. We're a unique blend, which every church should be. Um, we're going to cover a lot today. We're going to cover a lot. You're going to be writing quickly, okay, if you're taking notes. Um, so let me begin with a quick review. Church leadership. Jesus is the final authority over the church, all the church. He's the final authority over every local church. He's the authority. All other forms of authority flow from him. Number, number one, what we looked at after that 
We noted that Christ gives certain responsibilities to the congregation. Those certainly included nominating their deacons, which we saw in Acts 6, and we'll make our way back there soon. But it also included things like the whole church takes part in church discipline. Now, we hope church discipline never has to take place. But if it ever comes to a point where a church, a body of believers that have membered together and covenant together, if they ever have to look at one within them who's a fellow member and say, you know what? We've tried to work with you on this sinful thing that is going on, and you're just not repentant at all. You're acting like an unsaved person, and so we're going to have to vote you out of our membership because you're acting like an unsaved person. We're assuming you are, and to be a member of the local church, you have to be saved. And so somehow you made your way into the membership. We're now having to vote you out, and we've actually had to do that here, right, since I've been here. Well, the whole church does that, and then... Along with that, but a little different, the church has a responsibility of always listening, the whole congregation listening and paying attention so that no false teaching is allowed in the house of God. So your job is to make sure that I'm doing my job, right? You should be listening and paying attention. Number two, we learn that church leadership requires spiritual gifting. God gives spiritual gifts to all believers But he gives different gifts. Not every believer has the exact same blend gift set, uh, the blending of their specific uh, gift setting. So God does that. But certain church leadership requires certain spiritual gifting. And what we noted was that spiritual gifts are determined by God, but they should be recognized by the church. Like, Man, you appear to have that spiritual gift. We looked at Romans and 1 Corinthians to see some lists of spiritual gifts. So we noted that they are determined by God. They're dispersed by God. They do not determine our value. They do not, our gift, your gift set does not determine your spiritual worth nor your eternal reward, your faithfulness. To use your spiritual gift is what will determine that. While we were in that second point last week, we also noted this. This was important. That in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul put two church offices side by side, one paragraph and then the other, and he looked at the qualifications for elder or bishop overseers, bishop overseers, or deacons. And we noted that the qualifications that the Bible calls for are in essence the same. They're like almost the same with one key difference. To be a bishop overseer, that person has to have the gift of teaching. Has to have it according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So in other words, a Christian can be a deacon with the gift of teaching or without the gift of teaching, but they cannot be an overseer bishop without the gift of teaching. Okay, so you have to have that to be in this category. All right, then we look thirdly, that Scripture calls for leadership by elders, and the idea is under the final authority of Christ, he also has this leadership, and we want to back all of that up in the Bible. So let me briefly recap. We looked at two passages last week, Acts chapter 20, verses 17, and then 28. Here's what we heard. Paul tells a group of elders, inspired in the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit has called them to be overseers of the church of God. So catch that. We're going to read that again in a little while. Elders are told that they have been made overseers. Elders, overseers, one and the same person. And the Holy Spirit decided that. 
Another passage we looked at was 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. We'll look at that again in a little bit. But we learned that elders rule, and the idea is elders that rule all under Christ, but the elders that rule well are worthy of double honor. We'll see that again in 1 Timothy 5, 17 in a little bit. But two review points from that. First thing I noted last week was that in my experience, and I dare say most churches in our county, there is no office in these churches, in our churches, of a, of a title that is given the title of elders that just doesn't exist in most churches. There are some, but it's like that title doesn't exist. We, have, we use the title a lot, pastor, in our area. That seems to be the predominant one. But I would propose to you that the term elder is used far more often in the New Testament than the other two terms. Uh, that we will allude to. The second thing we noted on this is that often if a church does have a position of elder, they don't always have a biblical mindset and a biblical view of eldership. We borrowed from Alexander Strzok, and I'll not pull all of his quote again, but some people's idea of an elder is they're like a board, a board of men, apparently big shots in the church, or maybe they're old guys, the old guys who who take care of the contracts and the buildings and the grounds and the finances. Sometimes they're looked at, the view is, they're financial officers or they're advisors to the pastor. Some people think of them as policy makers. They're fundraisers. They're the administrators. But here's the problem. Some churches have an office of elders, but they never think that they are going to be teaching the Word of God. Or they don't think of them as actually shepherding and being involved in the lives of the people. Again, they have just this mentality of this board, this monthly meeting. And with that viewpoint, that is wrong. That is not the viewpoint of the New Testament. It's like what they are, what they do is not important until like the once a month meeting. Otherwise, they don't really have any involvement in the church life. And that's not what Scripture describes. Elders are supposed to be heavily involved. They are supposed to be shepherding and, and overseeing and speaking and teaching and preaching the Word of God. All right. So the last section that we kind of looked at was we noted there are three terms in the New Testament that the Bible uses interchangeably. And those terms, again, I went back to the old King James. Those terms were bishop, which you will not, I don't find that in the ESV. It's called overseer. Bishop, overseer. That's one title. And then we have this title of elders. And then we have this title of pastor shepherds. So you have elders, pastor shepherds, and then you have bishop overseers. And what I proposed to you last week, and I want to encourage you to study your New Testament. These are not three different offices doing three different things. They're one in the same group, but they're given these titles because they seem to accentuate and emphasize a different role of their, their office and a different function. So... Last week I noted this. Some people have their, in their mind a view that bishop overseers, like bishops, they're over large regions of, of churches. They're, they're, it's kind of like the bishops are the boss of all the other pastors in a region. That's just not the biblical view. Some are, again, elders. They're the people that are kind of hidden. Nobody knows who they are, but they kind of take care of the contracts. and the, They're like trustees, hidden, but they're not really that involved otherwise. That's a wrong view. And some people's view of pastor is that's the two or three guys that we hire to do all the work around the church and do the work of ministry. Well, we all spectate and watch them do the work of ministry. That is not the biblical view. We talked about that in our new members class this morning. All right, so I did not give you a heads up. Astrid, but uh, there was the last note. It might be note number 27, I think. It's a list of five things. Uh, each 
of these titles, if we could have that back up, I don't know if, whenever you get a chance to jump forward to that, that's the last thing that was in your handout because that's where I want to begin this morning. Yes, would you look at that? So we have these three terms, each elder, pastor, bishop, or overseer are all responsible. What do they do at the end of the day? They're just given a title. What are their jobs? I want you to note this, this in your mind. And if you are an, an elder and you're listening here right now, we need to look at this and say, that's biblically my job description right there. So in no particular order, number one, their job is to protect the church from perceived spiritual danger. Is there spiritual danger? Elder's job, the bishop, the pastor's job is to defend and protect the church. Number two, it is to give oversight of the church and its administration of things. There is, the church is not a business, but it conducts business, and their job is to give oversight, not to do all of the work and the business, but to make sure that they are giving oversight of whatever business is taking place. Number three, you'll see this in a little bit when we go to 1 Peter, if I remember to go to 1 Peter. Number three on that list is pastor, elder, bishops are supposed to model the Christian life. Very imperfectly, but they are to model the Christian life. Hey, follow me. I'm going to fall down and mess up. I'm going to blow it. But by God's grace, I'm going to get up again and talk like this and walk like this and live like that. And that's what we're called to do. Number four, to know and to shepherd the people of God. And then lastly is to feed the flock spiritual food by teaching and preaching the word of God. Next note, would you write this down? All three of these terms, elder, pastor, bishop, all three terms entail leadership and teaching. All three terms, leadership and teaching. If I was to go back and use that idea of bishop, in the old King James, or overseer. Where's the leadership? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that anyone who desires that office, and then it goes on and describes them as an overseer. So there's the leadership. They're the overseer. There's leadership there. But we also found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that to qualify as a bishop overseer, you must be able and apt to teach. So there's teaching and leadership. Pastors. It's the idea of shepherds with the flock. They're actually, it's a unique position. You're a member of the flock under Christ, but you're also in another sense an under-shepherd of Christ who's the chief shepherd. And the shepherd's job is to feed the flock, there's the teaching, and also to lead and care for the flock. And that's the idea of the leadership that has taken place. And then we have this idea of elder. Elders, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, we'll see it again. Elders that rule well. So that tells me elders rule, so there's leadership. They are to rule and they... Don't hear, please don't hear that like this, like T-shirt, elders rule. It's not like elders rule. What is it? Um, kids rule. No, no, it's just like it's a calling. It's a responsibility. Elders are to rule and give oversight. But elders also, according to 1 Timothy 5, 17, are to labor in the word and doctrine. So you see teaching and leading in all of those. Now, having written that, would you join me? You get your Bibles, and we're going to hit several passages today because we want to defend all of it from Scripture. Join me in Acts chapter 20. This is where we were last week, but I'm going to go a little further than I did last week. Acts chapter 20, I want to encourage you to not just rely on what you see on the screen, but follow along in your own copy of the Bible. Acts chapter 20. And again, what we're talking about this morning is very different. I know it's not a goosebump message. But it's an important, this is doctrine. Why do we do why we, what we do? 
And I hope that uh, you will invite the Lord. Lord, give me real understanding of this. All right, Acts chapter 20, look at verse number 17. So Paul is finishing the third missionary journey. You remember this from last week. He's heading back to Palestine. He wants to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He's in a hurry. And so he had just spent three years in Ephesus. This is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He had ministered there, started a church there, again, grew that church for three years. Now he's gone over to Greece for a little bit, and he's heading back to Jerusalem with a big love offering for the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. But he wants to get with these Ephesian elders. He can't go into Ephesus because he'll get bogged down because he loves the people too much. So he calls the elders to him, verse 17. From Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So there's a pastor's conference. The elders of the Ephesian church, you guys come to me. And then he goes into this long talk with them. And we have verse 28. So I'm skipping a lot. Jump down to verse 28. What does Paul kind of conclude He tells these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. So your number one job is like, really, how are my thoughts? What's going on in my life? How's my walk? Do I have known sin? What am I feeling right now? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Right there, we're connecting elders and overseers. We just saw in the Bible, one and the same people. Hey, you elders, come over here. The Holy Spirit's made you overseers. You didn't choose this. It came to you. The Holy Spirit has called you to be elder leaders in the church, and you are to be overseers of the church. Verse continues. Paul says, overseers, to care for the church of God. It is not your church. It's not your church, it's his church, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. As I pointed out last week, the church has been bought, we sang about it in the last song, it's been bought with the blood of Christ, it's called the church of God, God bought it, it's his because he bought it with his own blood, the blood that bought the church is the blood of Christ, tells me that Christ is God, and that the church is Christ's church. He is God, bought it with his own blood. But now watch verse 29. At this pastor's conference, I don't know how many there were, Paul says, I know that after my departure, when I move on, fierce wolves, not literally, spiritual, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking to elder overseers. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore, be alert. Be alert. Hey, guys, listen. I love spending, he talks about how he spent three years. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Paul's saying, I'm invested here, but it's the church of God. I know that when I leave, the Apostle Paul's going, now's our chance. We can get in there and start wooing away in some false teaching. Don't you guys let it happen. If you're taking notes, write this down. Alexander Strzok writes, quote, a prospective elder. Is this person going to be an elder or not? Well, this needs to be on the checklist. A prospective elder must have enough knowledge of the Bible to be able to refute false teachers. That's what Paul is calling for. Hey, guys, listen, they're going to come. Don't you let it happen. Your job is to not let false teaching find a foothold among you. And he even says it's going to come out from among you. One of you may start doing it. And the other should make sure that he is not allowed to do that. Did you catch it? What Strzok writes? 
They have to be able to refute. Not just recognize it. Oh, that's, something doesn't sound right about that. Maybe it, that just sounds new. That's great. New doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But maybe something strikes you like that. That, doesn't, that sounds like it's wrong doctrine. Can you refute it? What Strzok is right about saying is if anyone's going to be an elder, they have to not just be able to recognize false teaching. They need to be able to say that is wrong because of this and this and that and withstand it. Leave if you would, Acts 20. Go over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Right after 2 Timothy. 1 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 1. And you'll find doubling down on what Strzok just wrote to us. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. I'll give you a moment. Thank you for following along. I'm hearing pages turning. That's a good sound as long as it doesn't continue. We'd like you to arrive at Titus. I can picture somebody. Okay, you like that? endlessly. All right, we do, all right, here we go. I, my brain, I'm telling you. Yours too, you do the same thing. Titus 1.5, look at it. Paul tells Titus, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Crete's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Paul went and started a church in Crete, and he left Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Watch this. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you see what he's saying? Now I'm going, I'm going to make my way to verse 9 in a moment. Because that's the key point here. But already we're starting to get a feel. I'm going to come back to this verse later. I've left you there to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he starts going into a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole list of some qualifications of elders. What am I supposed to do appointing these elders? Verse 6. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Then, not on the screen, I'm not going to read it all, but verse 7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Did you see what Paul just did? Hey, I left you there to appoint elders. And an overseer must this... Again, he's just linked the two terms together. They're very interchangeable. But now he's talking about what are these requirements of the elder overseer? Look at verse 9. Go down to verse 9 of Titus 1. He must, here's a requirement, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word of God so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Did you catch it? He has to be able, he has to know the word, having been taught it, retained it, studied it so that he can give instruction in the word of God, but it doesn't stop there. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that A, he can give instruction himself, and B, rebuke when he hears somebody else that's giving wrong instruction. Does that note, uh, I don't know if we already had that up. So leave Titus just for a moment, go to another passage. We'll actually be back to it in a minute. Acts 15. Flip over there, Acts chapter 15, and notice verse 6, because Strzok is also going to point out another example. Acts chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles, you there? Watch. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you right now, because this is where, Lord willing, we'll finish the message today. Do y'all remember what Acts 15, it's the Jerusalem council, it's the apostles and the elders are there, and they're considering a very important matter about how do Gentiles actually get saved? And they needed to work through that. This blows me away. You've got the apostles. Why are those guys there? Because the elders, as Strzok writes... The Jerusalem elders, for example, met with the apostles to judge doctrinal error. Like, I would have thought, you've got the apostles. You don't need the elders. But they're there with them, working with the apostles. Their job is that important. Catch what Strzok writes. I'm going to give you a quote. We'll get to your handout in a moment, but hear the whole thing first. Quote. To discipline sin in the church... To confront internal strife and to stand up to powerful teachers and theological luminaries who expound high-sounding false doctrines requires courage, unquote. To discipline sin in the church, to confront internal strife, and to stand up to powerful teachers and theological luminaries who expound high-sounding false doctrines requires courage, How many times have elder, pastor, bishop, overseers had to discipline prominent members? Man, that's not going to be... You know who that is. You know their last name. You know their parents own this property, their great-grandparents. You know they're the biggest givers of all. To discipline leaders in the church. To discipline family members in the church requires courage. Write this down. Elders do not enjoy confrontation. They better not. They better not. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, they are not supposed to be brawlers and contentious type people. They're not not that way at all. By the way, some men are disqualified from ministry because they meet all the other qualifications. But boy, they love a good fight. And some, I've even heard, love a good fist fight. I've heard of that in our own county. Boy, I don't don't need to go there. Like, literally, literally, this has happened. It's craziness. And that will disqualify you very quickly. Uh, I'm not talking about self-defense, by the way. I'm talking about... In the house of God, in, in meetings, it's just things I've heard. Write this down. Elders do not enjoy confrontation, but they value the purity of the church so much so that when it's required, they will confront because they're going to defend the church. It's their calling. Somebody else may look at the issue and say, listen, let's just skip it. Let's just It'll go away. It'll fix itself. No, we've got to deal with this. Others may be worried about what's the image, what everybody in the community is going to think. Elders should be thinking, no, we've got to do the right thing. We've got to do what pleases the Lord and not worry about the image or keeping fake false peace. That's not the most important thing. We've got to do what is right. We have to do the right thing. Even if it means, man, I hate confronting, but I'm going to have to do it. So why do we have these different titles? Why do we have the three titles interchanged? Why in the world? Why, don't, why doesn't the Bible just use one? Guys, I can't guarantee this next note. I, don't, I wouldn't die for this next note. I'm going to offer you an opinion on why the three different titles. They seem to give a special emphasis. So again, if you're taking notes, follow along here. The idea of bishop overseer. We found that term in 1 Timothy 3.1. We've seen it in Acts. I'm going to propose to you, so everybody with me, like, why three terms? Bishop, overseer, those Bible words. Comes from this idea of episcopus. Is the idea of its, its root word behind it. 
I'm going to propose that that title, that one seems to emphasize this person's role as an overseer of the church's organization and the church's mobilization. It's organization, it's mobilization. The idea, this is that part of this person's calling where they have to administrate things. they got to oversee and make sure that things are heading the right direction, oversee the business. And again, the ministries, the mobilization of the church. Okay, so if that's the idea behind bishop overseer. Okay, I get that. That's good. Second term, why the term elder? Now, this one's tricky. Hang on. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the Bible is very clear that elders that rule well are worthy of double honor. That tells us that elders are to rule. They're burdened with the task of ruling. So wait a minute. Isn't that just bishop overseer? Are you hanging with me? I thought bishop overseer was the idea of the administration, the governance, the ruling. So why is this elder? Well, we know that elders also are to rule in that title is included. And with that note, I want you to go ahead and write this down. Democracy, what that tells us, what we're learning this morning, is that democracy is not the New Testament model of church government. It's not the New Testament model of church government. I don't know the exact order of your blanks there, but we'll catch up in a moment. Is the word, uh, yes, bishop, all right? So that note is up there, and we'll leave that a moment and let you catch up with it. So, okay, wait. If overseer bishop has more to do with the administration governance, then why elder? I'm going to go ahead and say, elder also has to do with ruling and church governance. But it seems that the term elder is even more so pointing another direction. It's pointing to these people's role as they're supposed to be a seasoned Christian who has a certain gifting and a certain calling that God gave them. And this gifting must be in the area of teaching and preaching the Word of God. In other words, they're elders. They're seasoned Christians. You can't be a new Christian, new to the faith, and be an elder, pastor, bishop. You can't be a novice. You have to be a seasoned person. And so elder seems to be really pointing to their teaching and preaching. They walk with the Lord. They know the Lord. and They they know the Word of God, always learning more. But they know the word of God enough to instruct and to refute false teaching. So then we ask this. Is that, yep, we've got that one. That's a long note. So I'm going to keep moving. So why the term pastor? What's the term pastor? And by the way, elder comes from this idea of presbyteros. Presbyteros. But then why we have this other word, pastor. What does that mean? Pastor. Pastor shepherd. I'm going to propose to you that pastor shepherd... By the way, are you getting the three categories now? Bishop overseer, it's how they govern and they're to oversee and to rule and administrate. Elder primarily is pointing to them handling the word of God and teaching and preaching it. So then what is pastor pointing to? Yes, a pastor is to feed the flock the word of God. But I think this term equally points to this. To know the sheep. To care for the people of God. Yes, leading them and feeding them. But again, knowing them and caring for them and looking after them. It's the shepherd's job. That is part of his position. So while you're writing that, I am remembering First Peter. I'm going to turn over there and I'll be reading that. First Peter in a moment. You'll see it on the screen. Again, we're... Covering a lot. 
in a short amount of time. First Peter chapter 5, once you've written that note. That one only has a few. Okay, good. You can do this. Join me. First Peter chapter 5. You say, why are we turning there? Because I want you to see, because what I've proposed is three terms are interchangeable, talking about the same people. And now I want to illustrate that with one passage. Peter is writing this, obviously. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders. Peter's writing, Hey, elders, I exhort you. Who is this? It's Peter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Watch what Peter says about it. He says three things. I'm a fellow elder. I'm exhorting you elders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm an elder myself. I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane. I saw it in the courtyard and probably may have even seen it from a distance while Christ was actually hanging on the cross. And he certainly saw his wounds in his resurrected body. Verse 1 again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I am this, I saw that, and I'm going to partake in this. Verse 2, what is his message to the elders? Watch it. Shepherd, pastor. Hey, elders. I'm going to use the word pastor not as a noun but as a verb. Elders. Pastor the people, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Did everybody just catch that? He's talking to elders, tells them to pastor, shepherd, and he says, exercising oversight, be a bishop, overseer. All in the same text. Elders, verse 1, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, having to be made to do it, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. Don't ever do it for the money. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, but not too eagerly. Catch this. Don't be half to made to do this oversight and shepherding. Do it eagerly. But verse 3, not domineering. So be eager to lead and to shepherd and to administrate and oversee. But don't domineer those over those in your charge. But being examples of the flock. Remember I said a while ago, number three is modeling the Christian life. Be examples of the flock. Okay, well, what happens if we do all of that? Verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you're taking notes, write this down. First Peter chapter five, verse one through four shows all three functions in one passage. All right. So having done that, I want to invite you to get your Bibles. We've looked at several passages, but we're going to look at several more now. I'm going to look at a whole string of them. Here's a warning, right? Here's a warning for you. But it's an encouragement. Get your Bible ready. We're going to look at ten passages quickly. Ten. Quick hitter. And I'm trying to... What I'm, what I'm about to cover, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the most important parts of this whole handout. It's one of the unique things that stood out to me as I was reading the Bible. And I rarely find this. And you say, why do y'all do that there at Graceview this certain way? And what does that mean? And how does it work itself out? And that's what I want to spend the majority of my, my time remaining is this point that's going to spring from these ten texts. So you got your Bible ready? Here we go. Go to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. Very important what we're about to hit. 
Very important concept. And I want you to see, I want you to be so convinced, man, this is absolutely a biblical concept. And some would probably be like, why have I never seen this before? Well, let's just mount the passages one on top of another back to back. Here we go. Acts chapter 13, look at verse number 1. Acts 13, 1. Here we go. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. We're the church of Graceview. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. The idea, pastor, teachers, prophets, gift of prophecy. Who are these people? Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. So he's a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, he's from northern Africa. Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So this is a guy who kind of grew up in the palace. And Saul, and we know that Saul is going to be called Paul. Read it again. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so these five guys are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, separate or set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So here you have five prophet pastor teachers working together that know each other in the Antioch church, and the Holy Spirit says, these two are supposed to no longer be here. They're supposed to go and do another work. And they launch out on what we call the first missionary journey. And so they head out in the first missionary journey, and they head down to Cyprus, and then they go up to what we call Turkey, and they come into southern Turkey, and they move up into the Galatian region, and they start planting all of these churches. That's chapter 13 and 14. Did you catch what it was? There were these leaders, prophets. Now move to chapter 14. Here's your second one. Chapter 14, look at verse number 23. They have gone to the end of the first missionary journey. They've started planting churches, and they've gone to the last place. And now what they're going to do is rewind and retrace their steps and revisit the new churches that they've started. Because now, like, okay, they, they had some Jews there before, but the, these Jews didn't know that the Messiah Christ has come and his name is Jesus. And he actually saves us from our sins by dying on the cross. They share this. So they move from Judaism to Christianity. They have these brand new churches. And now they've gone to the end on the first missionary journey. And now they're going to retrace their steps and watch what happens. Verse 23 of chapter 14. And when they, this is Barnabas and Paul, when they had appointed elders, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, you catch it? Elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Flip over to chapter 15, verse 6 again. Look at it quickly. Chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. These are the elders of the church of Jerusalem. You're in chapter 15 of Acts. Look at verse number 23. They're going to write a letter of their conclusions. And with the following letter, quote, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders. It's not like the apostles and the elder. No, it's the apostles and the elders. And they write their conclusion. One more time. I know we've already looked at it. Flip over to Acts 20. Go to Acts 20. We're on our way. We're going to keep moving. Acts 20. Keep hanging with it. Acts chapter 20, look at verse number 17 again. From Miletus, Paul, at the end of the third missionary journey, because we're moving through the book of Acts. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to the church to come to him. Elders. Go to chapter 21. 
This is an important one to remember. Chapter 21, there's a clue of something I'm going to come back to in, verse, in chapter 21. They get back to J- Jerusalem. They give them, they're going to give them this love offering they've been collecting. And watch what happens on verse eight, in verse 18. Luke writes, he's our author of Acts. He says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. Did you catch what just happened? At this meeting, there's Paul and Luke. He says, us. They're coming. They're going to present the offering. And they're going to tell them all the good things God's been doing in the Gentile churches. And who are they meeting with? They're meeting with James. James is like, man, he's like the lead pastor in Jerusalem. But the text says James and all the elders were present. So there's James and there's James and all the elders were present. Now, I said we'd look at it. Go, if you would, 1 Timothy. We're going through the New Testament here. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. Look at verse 17. You'll even see this one on the screen. Let the elder that rules well. No. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let the elders who rule well. Are y'all getting the point that I'm making already? You should be by now saying, I got the point, Jeff. But we're still not done. Look at chapter 13 of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Look at verse number 7. Quickly give you a moment. Oh, no, no. Hold your spot in Hebrews. We passed one. I want to hit Titus one more time. Titus 1. I want to hit Titus again. I skipped this one. Look at verse 5. We read it earlier. We're defending an important point that's not in a lot of churches. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Elders in every town as I directed you. Now Hebrews 13. Look at verse 7. I'm going to admit, the word elders is not used here. The word overseers is not used. But notice what it says in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your, it does not say leader. It doesn't say, hey, remember your leader. No. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. So if your leaders are leaders in the church, but they don't ever teach the Bible, they don't need to be the leaders. Remember your leaders, those who, spoke, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders, not leader. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those. Let them do this with joy. You see the pronouns, the plural pronouns. Can I hit one more here? You're in, James, uh, you're in Hebrews. Go to James. Go to James chapter 5, an important point. James 5, verse 14. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone sick? Here's an option. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Would you write this note down? The normal biblical pattern is for each church to have multiple elders. 
multiple elders. In chapter 14 of Acts, which is what we learned, when Paul and Barnabas had reached the furthest point of the first missionary journey, they retraced their steps, and part of what they did was that they appointed elders in each church. Did you notice the text did not say they appointed an elder in each church? No, they appointed elders in every church. Paul told Titus, appoint elders in every town. All right, yep, you see that. So while you're writing that, can I defend this thought again? And then I want to kind of develop it a little bit. Do you remember the Antioch church? Had five prophet teachers. You remember that? They had five. Antioch was a lot bigger city than Anderson, South Carolina. Hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands. Acts 13 was not a situation where there's like five churches all around Antioch that are separate from each other. And each one has a different senior pastor over each one. And those all pastors were fasting and praying. And suddenly it dawned on them that two congregations need to lose their senior pastor because they need to go on a missionary trip. Something called a missionary journey. They need to go do that. No, these are five guys that were working together with each other who knew each other and their congregation knew them. And among that, it became very clear, three of us are supposed to stay. You two are supposed to go. And they went. Watch. James chapter 5, if you're sick, an option to you is to call not for the elder. If you only operate under this, well, we got it. we got a senior pastor, and he's the leader of our church. That's the wrong mentality. Because that would mean, if you're sick, call for the elder. If you operate under the just the senior pastor mentality then what we would have to do with James chapter 5 is someone is sick, they'd have to call for the elders around Anderson. You'd have to get Steve Sylvie to come over and pray over you. And I'll join you, you know me. And we'll get Glenn Taylor to come pray over you and, and David Blizzard to come pray over you. We'll get several of us together. But you won't know the others because they're strangers to you. No, what's being described is a plurality of elders, multitude, and you know them all and they're going to come and they know you and they're going to pray over you. Acts chapter 21, if you want to take this, write this down, it seems to allow, that one is, I, thought, I told you to remember this one, because when they finished the third missionary journey, Luke says that we came the next day with James and all the elders were there. Now there's a clue. Did you catch it? James, we met with James and all the elders. So I want to propose this to you. Acts 21.18 seems to allow for the idea of a plurality of elders, but with the thought of a lead, or what, not a Bible term, what some have called a first among equals position. That model seems to coincide not only with Acts 21.18, where there was James and then all the elders, it seems to coincide with this. Paul left Timothy at Ephesus to set things in order there. He left Titus at Crete. That tells me James was kind of a quote-unquote lead, first among equals in, Jer in Jerusalem. Timothy was left as a, quote, lead, but first among equals in Ephesus. Titus is left as a lead, but first among equals in the island of Crete. And they were there to set things in order for those churches. Yep, there's that note. 
So you see, everybody see this? Hopefully this is making sense as we're working our way through. Acts 21, 18. It's the idea of a blend. There is a plurality of elders, yet there's this idea of a lead or a first among equals. And that's the same thing we see in, when Paul left Timothy at Ephesus and Titus in Crete. You say, so what does this mean? How does this work if they're leading? Well, some may preach more than others, but their leadership is equal. And even these lead, pa- lead pastors, they may be looked to for equal but special leadership, perhaps. Equal leadership but special leadership. So as soon as you've written that one, the next note I want to propose is another I'm going to call your attention. It is very important. Very important. It's a culmination of why I read all those ten passages. I'm going to go ahead and start on that one while you're reading. And then it'll be on the screen. So as we take what these passages, and there's others that allude to it. Several others. I did not exhaust them. Ladies and gentlemen, what we learn is in the New Testament, what you do not find anywhere in the Bible. We're talking about biblical church leadership. What you do not find is churches being governed by majority rule. You don't find it. Yes, there was a majority vote for nominating deacons. There was that. And there's a vote to kick out the guy in 1 Corinthians 5. So church discipline, there's a vote. But you don't find the normal ruling and governing in the church by majority rule. Secondly, you don't find anywhere in the New Testament churches being governed by deacons. Doesn't exist. That position is not a governing, legislating position. And third, to be clear, you do not find in the New Testament churches being led strictly by a one senior pastor. None of those models exist. It's not about majority rule. It's not about deacons leading in the church. It's not about one guy who has the title and the position. Yeah, that, that's, that very easy, easily lends itself to a dictatorship. What the New Testament describes is a plurality, a multitude of elder, pastor, bishop, overseers, all working together. I find it interesting. I've, I've never met a single Christian who thought churches should only have one deacon. I believe it's just one deacon. Okay. I've never heard anybody say that. But I have run into quite a few people who think, no, 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 churches should only have one, one elder. Like, mm, you need to read your Bible more. I'm sorry. I don't know why. We allow for the one. Oh, multitude of deacons. Why not multitude of elders? Well, that's not what I'm used to seeing. That's not what I, I grew up under. Okay, well, we need to change what we've grown up under. We need to go with the biblical model. All right. I'm going to keep moving. And now I'm going to go a little faster, actually. Plurality of elders. God, so I want you everybody to get it. God often gives churches multiple men with a special calling on their life that the congregation should recognize. Hear me. They may have a lead, quote, senior, or as our constitution calls for, teaching pastor. They may have that. But the church should still receive leadership, and I mean true leadership from all of the pastor, elder, bishops, overseers. All of them lead, equally lead. They should all be given 
the green light, if they sense something is out of balance in the church, all of them, any one of them should be able to bring that up and say, I, I think I've, I've spotted an issue. What do you guys think about this? They should be able to point out, I think something's out of balance and out of line with our teaching pastor. And they should have the green light to approach him privately. And if need be, carry it to the whole group. It is with them, teamwork among them, that the direction for the church should really come. Not just from one person, but the whole group, direction coming from them. They should pray, Lord, would you lead us and unite our hearts to be unanimously moving. And when issues come up, we want to arrive at the same conclusion, Lord, if by grace. And if it's not, then who's out of line? Or do we need to just wait and get more information? Teamwork and and unity and leadership and direction comes from all of them, not just from one of them. Next thought I want to take, I find this one is also important, and we're about to get into something, I'm gonna, again, second, second warning today, I'm going to give some nuances of this, this particular note, would you write this down, the New Testament does not set term limits for elders, by the way, it doesn't set term limits for deacons either, term limits in the Bible, I know some churches do that, that's their prerogative, that's fine, I know it's a kind of a human technique to guard against people getting out of line, and, but it's just not a New Testament thing. The New Testament does not set term limits for elders, nor does the New Testament set a certain number of elders. It does not say a church has to have a certain number. This is how many pastor, elder, bishops a church should have. It never sets the number, and it doesn't set a time limit of how long they should serve. So why doesn't it set a number? And that's what I want to touch on for a few minutes here this morning. This is, again, the gist of this idea of plurality. Yeah, that's a long note there. And I'm going to pause just a moment because we're starting the next thought already. So how many pastor, elder, bishops should a church have? New Testament doesn't say. Thank y'all for hanging with it. I'm hearing a lot of pages turn. We're writing notes fast, trying to listen at the same time, learn. I told you it's not a goosebump message. It's just not that kind. And when we finish in a little bit, we'll finish abruptly. We'll pray, and we will have done this, Lord willing. But I feel like this is, why do we do this? Well, here's our chance to know. All right, you ready? Here we go. How many pastor, elder, bishop, overseers should a church have? New Testament doesn't say. So then what's the rule of thumb? It doesn't give a set number because every ministry varies. Every, every single church, local church ministry is unique. So it's not a set number. So then what determines it? I'm going to offer you two things, and they're going to sound the same. The size of the ministry should give you a hint as to how many pastor, elder, bishops you should have. And also the demand, the workload of their tasks would give a hint as to how many we should have. All right? So the size, we're talking about the number of the congregation, but also what's the nature and the demand of their task? And by that I mean three areas. 
their preaching demand, their shepherding demand, and their administration demand. What does that require? Then that's going to give us a clue how many we hope the Lord would provide that meet the qualifications. How many do we need? Well, it depends. Every church, again, is totally unique. Did everybody just get the three categories? Yes, see the bottom of your note, whether it be preaching, shepherding, or overseeing. There's different, those, what I'm going to talk about here for a moment, guys, it's not about right or wrong. It's about uniqueness in every ministry. And so every ministry is going to look different, and it should. And it's not, again, it's not right or wrong. It's just find God's will for your local assembly. Let me begin talking about preaching. Some churches have one service a week, and that pastor, elder, bishop prepares to preach one time. Some churches have two or three services on Sunday, and they might even have them all on Sunday morning, but in some cases, a very modern thing, it's the same service two or three times, and thus the preparation is still one message just done two or three times. Aren't you? I'm glad I don't have to preach this one twice this morning. That would really, my voice would not last. Do you, does everybody get that? That's it's one preparation. But some churches have two services. They'll have a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, or they'll have a Sunday morning and a Wednesday or midweek time. Well, preparing to preach, man, you just doubled that portion of his load. Some have three times a week and a Sunday school on top of that. And so this person has got to prepare to preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, sometime in the midweek, and they may even do a Sunday school. And so that alone is affecting the workload just by itself. Then you have different preachers take different amounts of time to prepare. And sometimes it's because of their ability, their training, their experience, their style. Expositional preaching requires one kind of requirement. Topical preaching requires another. You guys probably heard me say this over and over. I am a very slow preparer. I'm a very slow preparer. Thankfully, we're in that. It's not a right or a wrong. We're in the two model. Sunday morning, midweek service that I prepare for on a normal basis. So I have those. Uh, but there, there are plenty of guys in this county. They're, they're preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night. When I just make my Sunday morning equal to Sunday morning, Sunday night. We do Sunday morning, Sunday night. And some do Wednesday night. And they're doing a, a, a Sunday school. That's just a lot. If you're doing just the senior pastor model, then he's got to, man, got to do all of that. What else does he do? Remember the other two categories? They're shepherding and overseeing. Then there's how you prepared. Y'all know that some preachers, there's many of them. My grandfather this, was this way. He didn't have a, a thing written down when he, he preached, I was told. He just went with it in his, in his head and in his heart, and he got up and preached. There are some, all they know is I'm starting somewhere in this passage, and I'm going to just go, and it's all inside. I've seen some preachers, they'll write it out on a napkin, and they'll have like point one and a little phrase, point two, and a little phrase, point three. I've seen some... They, they have a little sticky note at their opening passage, and then they know that that says to go to the next one. And at the bottom, that, and their, their sermon is sticky notes all through their text. And then there are some that's got kind of like a, a little page of handwritten stuff on a, on a legal pad. And at the bottom, it says, finish by telling the sad story about the old lady. And then read third stanza of song on page 244 of the hymnal. And that's their message. And then you've got knuckleheads like me that have this where I'm scripted out and those all factor in it isn't a right or wrong it's just different 
Do you understand that my preparation, well, I'm talking about the preaching, my preparation would be the same if there was 20 people here this morning or if there was 2,000. My Wednesday night, if I'm talking to 25 people, if I'm talking to 75, my prep's the same. What about shepherding? Think of this for a moment. Picture in your mind, here's a church of 50 people. Here's a church of 300. Here's a church of 2,000. I would propose to you that when it comes to shepherding, the man who, again, I'm trying to say, if we only have this senior pastor model, he's it. We don't believe in this plurality stuff. If you only have the senior pastor model, yes, the man that shepherds 50 people, he's probably going to know his people in a far more personal, intimate way than the others. The man who shepherds 300, he's probably not going to know his people as well as the guy that has 50. Unless the guy that has 50 has one message. They only meet on Sunday morning. If he only meets Sunday morning and he only has 50, then he really knows his people. But what if this guy over every 50, he preaches Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, and midweek, and the guy over here with 300 only has Sunday morning, then you could say, well, you know what? They may know their people equally. He's got more to know, but he has a lot less preparations that take place preaching and teaching. And you could see how all the variables can change within it. And then there's this guy over here that has 2,000. How well does he know his people? I've met people before that have, in their Christian background, they have this mindset, and you talk to them about plurality of elders, and they'll nod and agree, but their experience is in a church that has a senior pastor model, and then they find themselves in a church with 2,000, and they get really frustrated because the senior pastor doesn't have a relationship with all the people. That is not possible. That is physically not possible. And some even go so far as to say, well, when it gets to the point where the, the pastor doesn't know all the people, then that church shouldn't exist. It's, it's out of line. Says who? Do you think that the Jerusalem church that got up to 25,000, do you think Bartholomew and Thomas knew all 25,000 people? I'll guarantee you they didn't. So don't put our little man-made thoughts I know of someone, I can't say who it is, but I know of someone's really angry that the church they go to, that their senior pastor doesn't have a relationship with him and the other people that he would like them to. It's like, dude, it's 2,000 people. It is not possible. You're bringing your senior pastor model into your mind and putting it on this man. This is not realistic. Watch this. Administration. Do you know that when you have more services and when you have more programs and you have more categories, what are we going to do? We're, we're going to try to have a, a program for the elementary kids on, when we have church. We're going, to, we're going to minister to them. Okay. Somebody needs to oversee that. But we also want to have something to the preschoolers too. Okay, wait a minute. We do not want to just keep them safe. We want to actually teach them the Bible while they're there. We want to do both. That's going to take some oversight. But we want to like minister to the like middle schoolers and the high schoolers too. Okay. And we want you to do it all. Not possible. You're going to have to have some help. And we want college ministry. We want a women's ministry. We want a men's ministry. And we want a couple's ministry. And we want more buildings. Remember, the more buildings and the more rooms. And it's like administration grows and grows and grows. And here's what I found through the years. Different people, you by the way, place different values on those three categories second from the bottom. Some people's idea, what they're looking for, 
Man, they want a vision caster. They want a spreadsheet guy. They want the PowerPoint. They want the mobilizer, the builder. They want an administrator. That, in their mind, is the top thing. It's the most important, the bishop. Others, they want the shepherd. In their heart, the shepherd's the most important. And others, it's like, and by the shepherd, I, I want him to know me and my family. And others, it's his preaching and teaching. Those are nice. I just want to make sure when it's time to open the Word of God that I'm challenged and I'm inspired to live for Jesus and I know a little better how to do it. That's what I really need. And here's another interesting thing I found is that people rank their favorites based on their favorite category. Favorite pastor ever. Oh, it has to be so-and-so, brother so-and-so. Why is that? While he was there, man, it just, we started doing that and that and everything got so organized and it was great administration and we built that wing and we built that building. Man, those were the best days. And you ask another guy, your favorite all-time best pastor and some are like, wow, oh, I know who it is. It's brother so-and-so. And why is that? Wow. Because I talked to him every Sunday. We always had a conversation, seven, eight-minute conversation every Sunday. Our kids grew up together. We'd go fishing together. He'd come over and hang out in the house. We'd tinker on the tractor in the backyard. We had a great... We'd sit and drink lemonade. We went on a few vacations together. He always visited mom when she was in the house. There wasn't a month went by that he didn't go visit mom in, in the nursing home. He's the best ever. And then there's others. Your favorite ever. Man, those are great. But it's brother so-and-so. Why? Just because while he was there, it's like... Bible started making sense and it came alive and I got to know God and I just grew in the Lord and it just changed my life and that to me is the most important one and which category are you and I think t people tend to gravitate toward which one of those is the most important to them would you write this down each of these duties is to be shared by all of the elders but I'm going to propose to you based off 1 Timothy, and I don't have time to look at the next passage, that the one who primarily teaches and preaches and speaks to the congregation on a regular basis, that of all those things, administrating, shepherding, overseeing, teaching, preaching, that his teaching and preaching must be his primary focus. And I would base that, you go look it up yourself, I would base that on 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 16. And I would base it on Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The apostles are like, we're not going to stop doing this to do that. We have to devote ourselves to prayer and to the word of God. Yes, all elders are to rule, and they need to rule well, but some are called to labor in the word and doctrine. And I would propose to the one who's regularly, and that's why I like what's allowed to happen here. I'm slow, guys. I'm, super, I'm not just a slow speaker. I'm a slow preparer. And if I was not surrounded by good people doing a lot of the administrating and helping in the shepherding, and if that was all those things I did, then I would not be able to. And some of y'all are thinking, we've got to get him busier administrating and shepherding so he'll have less time to prepare. Uh, I'm reading your little devious minds as I'm standing up here. And I know what you're doing. Would you write this down? I think it's, uh, uh, it'll, it'll come up in a moment. All elders are to rule. But some are to labor in the word and in doctrine. And I'm skipping. Good luck, Astrid, keeping up with where I'm going. I'm, I skipped a few passages. 
All right. So I'm coming down the home stretch. I'll, I'll be done in just a moment. And as I said earlier, when we're done, we'll, we'll stop abruptly. I'm still on this topic. You say, what's your point you're making right now? It's still this plurality of elders. Why do y'all do it the way you do it? I'm still hitting this point. I'm still trying to defend it. So a while ago, we saw, in fact, we started today with five things. This group of people are to protect and to model the Christian life. Those are standard. But then we have these three specific functions. Teaching and preaching, pastor shepherding, and administrating. This bishop, overseer. Of these three, what's going on and what's the correlation? What I have also found in my observation is that God, just like with you, God gives different gifts to different people in different amounts. So to be in this group of plurality of elders, you have to have certain qualifications of character and spiritual gifting. But what we find is God gives varying gifts to varying degrees. And it's the same with pastor, elder, bishop, overseers. Same thing. I want to propose to you, rarely will you find one man extremely gifted in those three areas. I mean, really gifted, teaching and preaching publicly, really gifted, shepherding, and really gifted, administrating. The Apostle Paul is the rare exception. He was three for three. Man, that guy started churches off the ground, many of them. I think nobody taught like Paul. And man, he just shepherded. I know he did because he writes these letters to the Romans, and he lists all these people that he has these relationships, these deep relationships. I'm like, how does he do it? And he even says in Corinthians, I'm single. And so I'm not, I don't give myself. I don't have a wife. And he, he, he applauds those who are single in life. He, he promotes both singleness and marriage. Both are exalted in the New Testament. Paul was single, so he had a lot of time, and he gave it all to the Lord. Did everybody catch what I just said? Watch. Three areas. Teaching, preaching, shepherding, caring for the people, and administrating programs, ministries, buildings. Rarely is one person really gifted in all of those. What you usually find is somebody who's gifted at one of those, stronger, or two of those, but responsible for all three. Responsible for all three, but more gifted in one or two. So what does God do? When a pastor, elder, bishop finds himself weaker in one of these areas, it's his responsibility. Here's what I find. Number one, God may grow him in his weak area. But number two, write this down. Often God addresses his shortfalls. What if he's weaker in one of the areas? Often God addresses his shortfalls in multiple ways. God may grow them in their weak area. But another way God helps is by providing other elders who are actually stronger in his weak area. His weak area, God just so happens to bring someone, that's their strong area. He's not a great administrator. Man, that person is a great administrator. Shepherding isn't his top thing. It's just not his massive gift area. God puts somebody else that that is their gift area, primary gift area. Someone continue the note. God often helps by providing other elders who are stronger in his weak area. And a church is truly blessed. This is the blessed church when they have a group of elders that when the combining of all the elders, they collectively are gifted in all of the above areas. But individually, 
they're allowed to work and spend most of their time and energy working in their most gifted area, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? They're, they're to do all of the, that part of the ministry. They're to go five for five. And these three activities, they're to do all three of them. But a church is blessed when they have a plurality of leaders that like, you know what? That one's actually stronger than that one, and that guy's stronger than that one, and that guy's stronger than that, and that guy. But between them, boy, they've, they've got the bases all covered. That's a blessed church. And that's what we want to strive for here at Graceview. I'm almost done. What does God do when someone's deficient in one of the areas, a little not as strong? He may make them stronger. He'll, give, he'll surround them with other elder bishop pastors who are stronger. And this takes us back to Acts 6. Y'all know the third thing God does? He gives us what group? Any guesses? Deacons. Third thing that God does to help that, that group of men, God graciously gives us another tremendous gift, and that's the gift of deacons. Can I tell you what deacons are not? Deacons are not the legislative branch of the church. Deacons are not junior elders. I'm borrowing from John Trainum right now. He's not here, but he's the first one I heard this, use these terms. Deacons are not the legislative branch. Deacons are not junior elders, and deacons are not elders in waiting. We must not have this mentality well, someone's been in the deacon board a long time. I guess they're ready to graduate up to the elder board. No, that's not how it works. Someone may be in the deacon board and eventually be in the elder board, but someone may not even be in the deacon board and just go straight to being in the elder board. That's God's calling. You don't have to go there first. So it's not elders in waiting, not junior elders, and certainly not the legislative branch. If you find that in the Bible, please come show it to me. So let's finish these last notes. I'm going to have you write quickly, and I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'll be done. What are deacons then? Do we already write the other? Yep. All right. Right quickly. Let's move on to the next one. Deacons are biblically qualified men who come alongside the elders to assist them in the work of ministry, usually in the areas of shepherding and administrating. They're not required to help in the teaching, preaching. They come alongside and help in the shepherding, help in the administrating. They come alongside. Hey, how can I help? Let's take some of the load off of you to free you up to spend more time in the other. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, their job was handling a lot of the finances that went toward the poor. And they were giving care. The deacons were giving shepherding care for the widows. Not to the exclusion of the apostles, but to assist the apostles so they could spend more time in other areas. Deacons are an awesome gift from God, a very necessary gift from God. By the way, those two functions in the book of Acts chapter 6 are not exhaustive. They're just representative. All right. Written that? That's just five words to write. Quickly write this next one. In many ways, deacons are the front lines of the church mobilized. It's its hands and its feet. Their secondary leadership provides relief of very necessary tasks and thus freeing senior leadership to spend more time in the Word of God, more time in prayer, and to allow time for shepherding. Can you help in some of the administration and the oversight of some of the funds and the distribution of some of those things? Please help in that. And again, shepherding so that this group can spend more time studying and focusing on the Word of God. All right. I think that'll be up there. All right.
So as you're writing that, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and head toward the last notes by saying this. How do elders, bishop, pastors, overseers, how do they lead? How do they actually do it? I believe they do it like, it, like the apostles and elders did in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And we'll get there in the coming days. There was an issue in the church. How are Gentiles saved? Can Gentiles become Christians directly or do Gentiles need to get circumcised and keep the ceremonial law? We know the answer to that. Praise the Lord. We know the answer to that. We take that for granted. But you do understand in Acts 15, some of them had to work through this process. It was a struggle. So how did they do it? Well, the leaders of the church, the apostles and elders, follow me, they got together and they had to find the will of God. They had to find the will of God. And God showed them his will. And ultimately now we know God's will is to save Gentiles without having to keep the ceremonial law or be circumcised, without keeping the moral law. All we do is put our faith and trust in Christ. We go directly from being Gentiles, pagans, to being children of God. We do not have to become Jewish and then become Christian. No, we go directly. And they learned that, but they had to work through it and find the will of God. So, your next to the last note is something like this. I forget how it's worded. You're going to say, Jeff, you're playing with words. No, I'm not. How do elders lead? Here's how they are to do it. Just like the Jerusalem church. The individual leaders in the church there in Acts 15, this is key. Hear it, please hear it. I'm, they did not meet to decide God's will. Let's get together and we'll decide what God's will is. No, they did not meet to decide God's will. They met to discover God's will. And God revealed his will by leading them to arrive at the right conclusions that he wanted them to arrive at. That's how God wants elders in lesser issues. We're not dealing with salvation issues. That's already been dealt with in the Bible. But other things, what about this and this issue and that? What should we do? We want to discover God's will. We don't meet to decide God's will. We want God to lead our hearts and to bend our hearts to reach the conclusions that he desires. And so how does that happen? Your last note. Thank you for your patience. I needed it. Literally a few minutes ago, I thought, do I make this part three? And I was like, we're not going to make it part three. I wanted to finish, and we'll have it in two parts. Thank you for your patience. So how exactly do we discover the will of God in a meeting, leadership styles, how's that done? Here's the last thought. When pastor, elder, bishop, overseers who are called and have by God's desire, he makes the rules, he gifted them and he called them. When they gather, this is important, having regularly been spending time in God's word, if, if all of them have been regularly been spending time in God's Word, regularly praying, this is important, truly, genuinely surrendered to God's will, no agenda. Now, I'm going in that meeting. I'm getting my way. None of that. I want my way, or I want, you know, this needs to help me out. No. Truly surrendered to God's will, been spending time in His Word, been spending time in prayer, 
When those three things are coupled with this fourth thing, allow for a multitude of counsel. Your mind's not already made up. We're going in there. Man, they may have a better idea than me. They may, like, we have had to deal with some stuff in the last few months. We've had some long meetings. We've had some unscheduled meetings. We can't come in there with our own agenda and our mind made up. We've got to come in there. We've been reading the Word of God on a regular basis. We've been praying. We're surrendered to your will, God. And then allow for a multitude of counsel. And in that counsel, because we've been spending time with the people, we can come in and say, well, you know what? I know this is going on with this group. Oh, what have you found? Who said what? Okay, well, what does she say? Yeah, what does he think about it? Yeah, and we bring it all in. Allow for a multitude of counsel under the authority of the Word of God with the Holy Spirit in our hearts connecting us through prayer. Here's what you'll find. That church that has that kind of leadership, regularly in the Word, regularly in prayer, surrender to God's will, allowing for counsel, they'll not miss the will of God. That church will not miss the will of God. That's the church, and that leadership is the kind you could follow zealously. God has led. He wants us to do that, or he does not want us to do that. He has shown we've discovered his will. And through shepherding the people, God uses the congregation to inform our discussions and our counsel. Thank you so much for your patience. That is going to be left up there for a moment. Let me pray, and those of you that really need those last few blanks, you can write that, okay? Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what... I walked into almost seven years ago here at Graceview. Thank you for how you have grown these principles in us. And Lord, I pray that we just that you'd just continue to show us where we're out of line, out of balance, not quite right where we need to be, that we've not seen it yet in your word or where your Holy Spirit uh, says we need to change or to grow, expand. I pray that you would reveal that. And Lord, I pray that uh, you just help us to live by the principles of governance, by your word, all under the authority of Christ and his word and his Holy Spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Have a great week.